The following pre-recorded program is brought to you by Wrestling with the Inner Man. Welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man. Because the first fight we face each and every day is a fight with our flesh. Do we listen to our selfish, sinful nature or to divine nature guided by the Holy Spirit? Your host, David Savage, is a product of the West Texas desert and energy industry who recently received the biggest promotion of his life, reporting directly to the top boss, God. We hope you're ready to rumble because wrestling with the inner man begins now. Good evening, WWM listeners. Hey, here we are, launching a new year after midterm election, and the nation remains polarized into two political brands that seem more strongly divided than ever. So my guest today is Dr. Robert B. Talese, the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy, Professor of Political Science, and Chair of the Philosophy Department at Vanderbilt University, quite well known for their uh, academics. He writes mainly about political philosophy with special interest in democracy, justice, pluralism, and moral disagreement. In addition to his academic writing, Bob's also involved in several public philosophy initiatives, including hosting his own podcast called Why We Argue. So drawing on his extensive research, Dr. Talese recently published a book titled Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place. Now, if there is one thing the entire nation is truly wrestling with today morally. This is the topic for 2023. <laughs> Dr. Robert Talese, thank you so much for coming on the show and welcome to Wrestling with the Inner Man. Well, David, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Well, uh, so just to set this up a bit, let me share this uh, segment from the book's uh, Amazon description. So okay. Talese sheds light on just how deeply entrenched our political polarization has become and opens our eyes to how often we allow politics to dictate the way we see almost everything. By limiting our interactions with others and our experience of the world so that we only encounter the politically like-minded, we are actually damaging the thing that democracy is meant to preserve in the first place, the more fundamental good of recognizing and respecting each other's standing as equals. So, Bob, why don't you frame out your concept, which is called belief polarization, for our audience? Sure. Um, you know, we talk about polarization often as if it's the um, a metric of the division between the two main parties in the country. Um, and polarization in that sense is a problem. But there's a more fundamental um, phenomenon that's also called polarization, which I think is the, the real culprit in our politics, uh, and as you were saying, David, I call it belief polarization. Belief polarization is like the yes-man phenomenon, um, only with a fancier title. Belief polarization is the regularity with which people come to adopt more extreme versions of their beliefs as a result of interacting only with like-minded others. So when everyone around you agrees with you, affirms uh, what you say, nods yes when you speak, um, it turns out that it's very, very bad for us and that it leads us to become more radical, more extreme, more confident, and more dismissive of other, uh, of other views. Um, so belief polarization is not limited to politics. It's just a, it's a cognitive tendency that applies to us in general uh, whenever we find ourselves submerged uh, in a community of like-minded others. Well, you know, and that's... Uh... I, it's just fascinating to me because, you know, that's also like an echo chamber. And because right. of the, the entertainment industry, you know, 
when I was growing up, you know, I was born in 1960. So we had we had ABC, NBC, CBS, and we all kind of had the same experience, you know, watching mm-hmm. the news or television. So how has uh, technology enabled the lifestyle choices to to replace the significance of geographic proximity as the way we define our, our hive or our lifestyle group? Well, good. I, I think that, you know, we tend to focus uh, in thinking about this kind of dysfunction, you know, sort of closed-mindedness and radicalization and the rest. We tend to focus on social media, and social media is certainly part of the problem. Um, but part of what makes social media a problem from the point of view of extremification and radicalization is that um, the fundamental feature of social media is that we get to choose who we interact with. Um, we get to choose our community. We get to choose uh, what messages we see. And it turns out that, in this respect at least, social media is not that much different from our ordinary physical environments, um, in part because of technology of other kinds beyond just the Internet and such, um, but also just because of some of the ways in which the country has developed economically um, more and more of the social spaces that we inhabit in our day-to-day lives are politically homogeneous. Let me put that slightly in a way that sounds more like data. As the country over the past 40 years has become more diverse in its overall population, Mm -hmm. and diversity here I mean ethnic diversity, racial diversity, diversity with respect to um, languages spoken in the home and cuisines and, and all the rest, Um, But as the country has become more diverse along all those metrics, um, the individual individual spaces that you and I inhabit in our day-to-day lives have become more homogeneous. So greater heterogeneity in the aggregate has been accompanied with greater homogeneity in our day-to-day lives. And so now the chances of running into somebody who is politically unlike yourself when you're buying, for example, groceries – is really low because our where we buy groceries, where we buy coffee, how we spend our weekends, where we vacation, uh, how far away from home we go to vacation. Even our occupations have become partisan sorted, segregated into partisan camps such that now the chance of a unplanned encounter with somebody who isn't just like you is is shrinking drastically in the country. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was at a, a luncheon uh, with an organization called the World Affairs Council, and I don't know if they have that there uh, in Nashville, but we have the World Affairs Council of Houston, and they have people come and speak. And this gentleman was uh, like the undersecretary. He was he was like maybe, you know, in the top three echelon at the Federal Reserve. And mm-hmm. he said he had grown up in Minnesota, and he and his dad used to go to Twins games. And he said when he was little, the difference between the lowest price ticket and the highest price ticket to go to a Twins game was $8. You know, and everybody right. from every class ate the same soggy hot dogs and stood in line <laughs> to uh, go to the same men's room. And, you know, so you had an opportunity to kind of brush up against people that, you know, were from different classes. But now you have, you know, the skybox and they're behind the glass and the, and the disparity just in a ticket price, you know, of a, you know, a scalped ticket to, you know, a major, uh, just an SEC football event, you know, is several hundred dollars and even a student That's ticket, right. you know, it's, it's just interesting. So 
I, I certainly agree, you know, with what uh, your your thesis is there. But how how does this make us more e- extreme versions of ourselves? Well, so remember, th- this is how we connect up this sort of partisan segregation with the the, the first question you asked: belief polarization. Um, belief polarization is this cognitive uh, tendency to become more extreme when our interactions are mainly with people who are like ourselves. And so just think of the analogy with um, uh, something you mentioned a moment ago with the echo chamber. You know, we think that online spaces, you know, because we can filter out people who disagree with us or offer a different perspective, we hear louder and louder echoes of our own voices. That's the echo chamber thought. And that leads to us becoming more extreme, less tolerant of disagreement, more dismissive of people who aren't just like us. Well, it turns out that given that our social spaces are so politically homogeneous now, it turns out that the dynamics um, that that govern uh, social media are actually in play in our day-to-day lives. The world around us is often like an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And so when the grocery store uh, uh, is um, segregated in a way such that you know, if you shop at Whole Foods, for example, the chances that you vote conservative are very, very low. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, we could, um, you know, if you want to have a really good predictor of how um, a particular community voted uh, uh, or whether, uh, whether a particular community voted for Barack Obama, you just need to look at how close the community is to a Cracker Barrel restaurant. The closer they are to a Cracker Barrel restaurant, the less likely they are to have voted for Obama. That's fascinating. You know. <laughs> and, yeah, so you see these trends all around us. And so what it means is that we're hearing louder and louder echoes of our own voices, even when we're doing day-to-day things. And part of what that means is that our conception of the responsible neighbor, the, um, uh, uh, the conscientious coworker, uh, the dependable parent, um, our, our, our concept of other people's virtues has become wrapped up with our concept of our political allies. And similarly, our concept of other people's vices has become wrapped up with our concept of our political foes. And so we are losing the opportunity to engage with others in contexts where they could demonstrate their virtues to us in ways that aren't already tethered to their politics. Yes, I, I mean, I'm thinking I've done some shows with uh, artificial intelligence, too, and they say, you know, that they've kind of built this virtual bot, you know, of you. And there's this show uh, or documentary, Social Dilemma. I don't know if you saw that, but, yeah, yeah, I've seen, you know, yeah. it's fascinating. And you know, so they've got this version, you know, and they, they kind of know what you like and what you don't like. And so then when you do a search on Google or you ask Siri or Alexa something, you know, it's going to even even artificial intelligence is reinforcing yeah. that. By Has your research uh, looked into any of that? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's in a way. Um, we feel uh, these these kinds of trends as a kind of liberation, right? Hmm. It's like, oh, like Google really knows what what I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, this makes things so much easier because I'm, I, I, you know, the the algorithm can predict uh, uh, what I'm doing. And I, I don't know if 
uh, listeners use um, a streaming music service or any of these other sort of algorithm-driven um, platforms that deliver something, uh, deliver something that's like book recommendations on Amazon. Um, but I, I find them, you know, disconcertingly accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. You know, and in a way, that feels it's it's kind of it it frees us from having to search and and put the work in to find the things for ourselves everything is immediately on tap so it's it's got a a liberatory feel to it but on the other hand um it does have this broader social implication that um it contributes to uh a kind of political segregation that is just fundamentally at odds with the ideals of a democratic society. Because remember, in a democratic society, we are called upon as citizens to recognize that our political foes, even our political enemies, are right. nonetheless equal citizens, right. entitled to a share, an equal share of political power. Um, and when the world is segregated in this way, according to a partisan affiliation. We lose the capacity to recognize uh, the equality of people who don't share our political identity. And if there's one idea or one thought that strikes me as fundamentally anti-democratic, it's the thought that says democracy is possible only among people who are just like me. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the deplatforming, you know, that goes on now, it's like, well, if you're not, if you're not saying what we like, then you're, you're kicked off of Twitter or, you know, whatever the, the, the particular channel is. So, you know, I, I thought it was really interesting. You mentioned, you know, about Cracker Barrel and then, you know, you've talked about like shopping at Whole Foods or your coffee is at Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks. And I, I mean, it's really, you know, you're pointing out things that we know are true, but we don't really have that uh, awareness of. But the people who do have uh, awareness of that are the, the political consultants. And yeah. so so why can't the mitigation of this over-democracy come from the political parties? Well, David, you, you, you just put your finger on it. Um, it's because, um, you know, political parties, candidates, campaigns – benefit from this. Put yourself for a moment. This might not be hard for some of your listeners. It might not be hard for you either, David. Mm -hmm. Just put yourself in the moment, for a moment in the role of the campaign manager or the strategist. It's, it makes your job really, really easy or much more, let's say, much easier. I don't know if the job is ever easy. Mm -hmm. It makes it much easier if you can predict with some uh, reliability what you're likely what what the likely voters for your candidate are likely eating where they work how many children they have what kind of neighborhood they live in what kind of aesthetic they uh, uh they prefer um what what vacations they take whether they have a passport whether they speak a foreign language at home with their children and so th these dynamics of sort of partisan segregation, make it the case that if I learn a couple of things about you, David, and your lifestyle, I have a really reliable indicator of what you prioritize politically and how you regularly vote. And since in the United States, especially at 
uh, the state and national levels. Local elections are a little bit different in the U.S., but mm-hmm. state elections and national elections, uh, we we know, and this is I, I don't think this is a controversial thing to say. Um, this these are turnout projects, right? The right, idea right. is, is about turnout. Get out the vote. If you can get your people out, you're going to win. Well, it turns out that if I can, the more I can know about my likely voters and how they live their lives and what they value and how they relax, what television shows they watch, what kinds of cars they drive, the more I can know about them, the easier it is for me as a campaign strategist to direct my candidate to tap into those values, including those anxieties, those resentments, those concerns, those worries. And so it turns out that just like with the algorithms that are building, as you say, this little you know, AI version of each of us, right. well, it turns out that the political strategists are playing the very same game. If you drive a pickup truck and you live in, a, 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 you know, in the middle of the country, chances are that, there, uh, that you live in a certain kind of house. By the way, here's just a staggering thing. I love this stat. Um, uh, the number of clocks you have in your home positively correlates with how conservative you are politically. Wow. The more clocks, wow. the more conservative. Yeah. Um, the more maps you have in your home, the more liberal you are. <laughs> really? Clocks and maps? I, I like maps. I'm a kind of a yeah. cartographer yeah, well. kind of guy. <laughs> Now, we could tell stories about why that might be the case, and, you know, there are all kinds of things to say. You know, if you, you, know, if you have a passport, you're more likely to vote liberal in the United States than not. And that might explain the maps, but who knows? Um, yeah, yeah. But it does just look like it's a, you know, the more information that can be sort of amalgamated and connected so that I can build a fairly reliable profile of the likely voter for my candidate, the easier my job becomes as a strategist and a campaign manager. And so it seems to me that, you know, although politicians like to and, and you know, commentators and maybe all of us like to sort of lament polarization and divisiveness and the way in which the two parties have pulled apart and the common ground has dropped away and all that is lamentable. Nonetheless, seems to me to be the case that the real benefit, the benefactors of all of this are political candidates. And that's why I don't think that the solution can come from them. They've got too much at stake, too much to lose yeah. uh, if the country were to sort of uh, shore up its, its common ground. Well, so, you know, where we are is we, we have become radicalized without really our own awareness because of how we've uh, inoculated ourselves from people who are different. And, right. Uh, and then we, we can't rely on our politics to actually fix this problem. And, you know, th- to me, this bears a strong resemblance to uh, the Jewish culture uh, of the Old Testament, the Pharisee in each of us. And that's really kind of where you get convicted. You know, I'm a strong Christian, you know, and that, you know, oh, he's unclean, you know, so we can't, you know, we can't do anything with that person. He's unclean. You know? <laughs> right. And uh, so it's the Pharisee in each of us, you know, that we're really wrestling with. So. How can we as common citizens, you you know, just you and me, I, I build these bridges to those with different views through cooperative uh, interaction with others? Well, good. I, I think that the um, uh, that, that part of what you said is sort of is the beginning of the story. I think that, um, you know, w- w- democracy is such an important, precious good <laughs> mm-hmm. that we tend to think that, you know, the more of it, the better. 
Um, but that's an error, right? I mean, you know, good things can, uh, you know, owe some of their value to um, th- they're being kept in their place, right? You know, just mm-hmm. think about the the, the 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 second slice of cheesecake isn't so good. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great great illustration. Yeah. Uh, so you want to say, well, so you know, certain certain kinds of goods um, derive their value from. Um, respecting their limitations, respecting their their contours, and so it seems to me that in a democracy, the thought that the more the more democracy, the better, has led us to what I think is a kind of error uh, that that we should always be doing politics with one another all the time, um, and I think that that makes us worse democratic citizens. It does. Um, because it, it it leads us into this 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 loop by which we come to see the other side as undeserving of uh, equal treatment or equal regard. We come to see the other side as so fallen and de- and depraved politically that they're not even worth talking to. Those are fundamentally anti-democratic tendencies. So the 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 solution that I offer in the Overdoing Democracy book is to say we need to reclaim segments of our shared social spaces for cooperative activities uh, that are non-political in nature. And it's important for me to stress what I mean by that. I mean that we need to find things to do together where we're not so much suppressing our political differences or bracketing our political differences or agreeing to disagree about politics. We need to find ways to interact, you know, activities to engage in together where our political leanings are just beside the point where we don't know what the other participants' politics are, not because we're hiding them, but because instead we're doing something else. Now, I've given lots of talks to all kinds of different audiences about this idea, TED Talk, academic audiences, all the rest, and people have a real struggle with the idea that there could be a cooperative activity that wasn't already organized around something political. And I want to suggest uh, to you and to your listeners the fact that we struggle to imagine a non-political cooperative endeavor is part of the problem. It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, I, I'm a curious person and I, you know, I grew up in a, a small town in West Texas. But because my dad was in the Air Force, you know, we did, you know, we had lived overseas. And it. I like doing new things and, and enjoying different people. I live in Fort Bend County, which is probably the most, I've, they say it's the most diverse County in the whole country, you know, we have about twenty five percent Asian. We have a big Muslim community. We have a mm. black community. We have Hispanic community. Very, very diverse. You know, even on my own right. street. And so, like for example, here recently we just had Halloween, and but it's the same time as uh, Diwali. You know, and I'm like, right. well, why do these people have their Christmas lights out so early? <laughs> and then, <laughs> and so I go talk to my neighbor, and I'm like, what is Diwali? You know, and 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 they're happy to share. But you know, that's an example where you can kind of, uh, you know, at least learn or be open to it. And I think right. I'm really in your corner there on that. And I try to do that because I'm, I'm as guilty really also of the, the, uh, the belief polarization. It's just the awareness. And that's kind of what right. we're trying to do is raise. So, so any, any final thoughts or uh, advice you have for our listeners? Well, tomorrow's Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and a lot of people are agonizing over Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and there's even a op-ed, you know, there's a genre of op-ed writing and, and political commentary about how to handle, you know, political disagreement over Thanksgiving. Um, I just ask your, your, your our, you know, our listeners right now to consider the following thought. 
begin Thanksgiving dinner with just a statement that says we're here to enjoy each other's company and reconnect as family and friends. And that doesn't have to include politics. We don't have to suppress our political differences, but we're here just to do something else, to just enjoy each other's company in some other setting where other kinds of issues matter. Right. right. And see what kind of result you get. Well, super. Well, I, I thank you so much. I mean, we could go on talking a long time, I think. I, I would love to visit with you more on it. But we're out of time here on the show, and I just need to mention my sponsor, Prism Specialties. You know, they're in the restoration business, and so they do a lot to help repair things uh, once they're damaged, electronics, textiles, artwork that may have been damaged, you know, through water or uh, lightning strikes. And so call Prism Specialties to help you restore and recover those valuables. And if you got any questions about uh, the show or our content on it, email me at wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com to offer your input, suggestions, or feedback on any of our programs. So God bless you. Happy Thanksgiving, and thanks for being on, Bob. Appreciate it. Thank you, David. Take Bye. care. Bye. AM 1070, The Answer, Wrestling with the Inner Man. Thanks for listening to Wrestling with the Inner Man with David Savage. For more information, reach out to David at wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. That's wrestlingwiththeinnerman at gmail.com. Tune in next time as Wrestling with the Inner Man tackles more tough topics to train up a generation of better men.